here on Fashion by Dad. By Dad. By Dad. By Dad. Well, we're not bad on Fashion by Dad, where it's 5am in the morning on the east coast of Australia. You're listening to me, Jeff Ebbs, joined by Claire Tracy Art. Good morning, Claire. Good morning, and what a wonderful rainy morning it is. It is a very rainy morning, isn't it? And uh, good to see the streets. It's good to be alive in a La Nina year. It certainly is. After all of this drought and, you know, I've still got the bushfires in mind, waking up to this beautiful life-giving rain is so exciting. Well, I don't want to burst your bubble, baby, but I think there might be more drought on the way. La Nina might be the exception rather than the rule as we head into a... Uh, shocking, <laughs> shocking uh, era of climate change. However, we don't have to be all doom and gloom. We can have a little fun dancing in the fountains as the world burns around us. I mean, we can try and, you know, subvert that burn whilst dancing at the same time. Indeedly doodly. Uh, now, just before I mention the great fun that I've been having dancing in the fountains... <laughs> oh, no! You should have been there! I'm sorry, it was, it was loose yesterday. Oh, we should have been there. <laughs> we should have been there. <laughs> yes, indeed, you should have been there. You know where I was that you should have been, Claire? Where? I was at the QPAC, the second last, the penultimate performance of uh, Boy Swallows Universe. And how was it? Bloody brilliant. You should have been there. <laughs> It was just fantastic. So, I, I don't know. Do you know the book? Do you I know? do know the book. Yeah, yeah. So, what were the top five things about seeing it done as a stage play? Uh, the staging was absolutely magnificent. So, pretty well a bare stage, quite rough and ready, so not smooth textured. A sort of industrial, you know, some brick, some plaster, some stairs, all sort of metal and concrete kind of look. Uh, with projection on it so that, you know, a suburban house or the interior of a Vietnamese restaurant was created on those walls. Quite a lot of scenes were prison scenes and so the, uh, you know, rough-hewn walls worked very well in that atmosphere. And uh, But, you know, very evocative. Uh, so that was one thing. The staging was great. And, of course, the playhouse has the wonderful two... Uh, a donut and a circle that can turn separately and in opposite directions, allowing all sorts of you know wonderful stage craft to be had. Um, so I'm going to split the staging into two to fill up the five that you've challenged me with. Um, the other part of the staging that really struck me was the way that they. Uh, brought sets and props on and off. So quite a few of them were dropped from above, as, you know, sets traditionally are in stage, but they were done in front of our eyes in performance and took up a small section of the stage. So, you know, a kitchen wall would drop down and then you would be in the kitchen and the furniture was sort of being constantly moved around by actors or... Uh, the ensemble who were familiar to us but sort of not 
part of the scene currently going on. So there was a very dynamic sense that you were in the making of the play as well. And that's why I've separated from just being the set because it became a process. So those those two things created a physical presence, which was quite unusual. I mean, it's not unique in live theatre to have that kind of raw and ready uh, sense. I haven't seen it done with projection so much and, you know, enjoying a little bit of projection myself. I thought that that was quite marvellous. Shall I go on? I mean, you've asked me for five and I've been talking for, it seems like, hours and I could keep going. <laughs> no, I think that's a fairly good assessment. Um, and tell me about the acting. Uh, the acting was just also fantastic. So the lead actor is a young, naive kind of character and the young, you know, suburban Aussie boy of Polish background by his name uh, carries it off pretty well. Sometimes you sort of almost... Um, you, my heart bled for him because he seemed so innocent and naive and you think, oh, a bit of polished lad would help. But that just works really, really well. Um, his brother, who was silent for probably the first half of the play, is compelling, you know, so not everyone could carry off a silent part and being compelling at the same time so he does that well um you know the old guys playing prisoners and thugs and everything uh you know convincing and rough and ready and the uh, uh, vietnamese characters which are almost uses a bit of light relief which is a little bit sort of um, Aussie, bit of Aussie racism there which is entirely appropriate really um, they steal the show so Bitch Dung or Big Dung the mum is just the most hilarious and wonderful endearing character and she appears in a couple of other cameo roles, such as the secretary of the editor of the Courier, Ma Courier Mail, and gets the biggest laugh from the whole audience just by walking out of the room. She walks out of the room in such a hilarious manner that everyone is just rolling in the eyes, laughing, and the performance has to sort of stop till the audience settles down. That just reminds brilliant. me of that famous saying about acting, that there are no small parts, just small people. Mm, well... Uh, I don't remember the actress's name, but the actress who played Big Dung is certainly a comedian of extraordinary talent. And the son is just as <coughs> you know, capable. You know, he plays fight scenes that look like ballet. Um, he plays his character as the sort of friend, foe, uh, straight man to the main character with you know, a plum and heart, you know, really, really just very, very good. And of course, the story is uh, wonderful. Being set in Brisbane and being such a story about ordinary people and, you know, a lower socioeconomic class and its view of the, um, you know, the nice suburbs of Brisbane just brings the house down. Everyone, you know, from whatever point of view they're coming from and you can be assured that at, you know, $99 a ticket <laughs> there's not too many Darren locals in the audience so it's it's sort of, you know, p punching up quite well. So how many performances are left? 
None. None. So you got finished. Gone. <laughs> so, so this isn't a promo. This is just saying that you could afford a ninety-nine dollar ticket. Yes, as thanks the to upper my echelon of <laughs> Brisbane society. My white male privilege. That's and, it. Uh, you had a really good time. I had a really good. I <laughs> had a really good time. So you know. Thank Sorry you that you're a poor, struggling uh, listener and you couldn't be in there, but you should have been there. Um, here we are on Fashion by Dad, where it's nine minutes past five on a Tuesday morning. This Tuesday is the 12th of October. Welcome back to Fashion by Dad. This is Claire Tracy Art bringing you in with this week's Blazer of Glory, a historical moment of fashion and Gosh, what would we call it this week? I'm going to call it outside pubes. So, Jeffrey, have you heard of the sporran? The sporran? Isn't that the hairy thing that hangs between a Scotsman's legs? It hangs on the outside of the kilt, but in the pubic region. In the pubic region? Um, it used to be made, I think, of baby seals because, you know, those Scots, they weren't the, the kindest of souls when it came to Well, their... you've got to have a good source of hairy things. <laughs> and so, a seal provides... The sporran was a take on the medieval purse, but was also meant to display the virility of one's manhood by having a big hairy bush on the outside of your clothing. So not only were you perhaps able to raise up your kilt, as we saw in Braveheart, and show the dirty, filthy English your loins in an act of rebellion, you could also wear your pubes on the outside. So that is this week's Blazer of Glory, which leads into a story about Robbie Burns and my favourite topic, my Scottish grandma. So in this age of social distancing, I have had this poem stuck in my head all week and it is called To a Louse by Robbie Burns, which is Scotland's favourite poem. Now, do you know who Robbie Burns is? I think he's Scotland's favourite poet. Yep, that's <laughs> correct. And I grew up in Canberra, Australia, every year celebrating Burns Day, where some Aussie bogans would put on some kilts and then hack at a haggis with some swords, and then we would get to eat some, and it, it was horrible. But I felt very proud to be part of this strange, mysterious culture that in the height of summer would get up in their kilts, drink a lot and eat some sheep's stomach stuffed with offal. Mm. And, uh, you know, did the louse come into those celebrations? So my grandmother used to be able to recite beautifully, which I think is a bit of a lost art, uh, these poems and... Growing up, I was forced to learn poems and recite them off by heart. The only one I can still recall to mind is uh, Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll. But I do have here a copy of To a Louse, and why I think it's interesting in these times is the final verse talks about how we should see ourselves in others. So when I'm horrified on public transport about being around other people and I'm like, you're not social distancing, I think of this poem and poor Robbie Burns, he's sitting in church and he sees a louse, so lice, on this woman's bonnet in front of him. And I'm just... And it, the language is just fantastic. So... I'll read out the first verse. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll read out a few sections. So this is when he's, he's so close to this woman and he can see her head 
And he's like, ha, where ye gun, ya crawling furly. Your impudence protects ya surly. I canna say, but ye stunt rarely. Our gauze and lace, thou faith, I fear ye dinny but sparely on a sick place. And he goes on to say, ye ugly, creeping, blasted wunner, detested, shunned by saint and sinner. How dare ye set your fit upon her, say finer lady. Go somewhere else and seek your dinner on some poor body. And he's just lamenting about how this lice is going to jump out and get him and get the congregation. And uh, at the end he says, Oh, Jenny, dinner, toss your head. So don't move your head around. Like, stay still and set your beauties a bread. So, like, don't let those lice get everywhere. Ye little ken what cursor speed the blast is making. They winks and finger ends I dread are notice-taking. And the final verse, and this is my favourite one, and the one that I try and remember when I'm uh, feeling a little judgmental of those around me and their lack of social distancing. Oh, what some power the gifty gears to see ourselves as others see us. It wed fay money a blunder freers our foolish notion what airs in dress and gate wadliyavs are evan devotion. And my apologies for butchering Robbie Burns there, but what that translate as translates as roughly is, Oh, would some power give us the gift to see ourselves as others see us? It would from many a blunder's freers and foolish notion, what airs in dress and gait would leave us and even devotion. So there's Diana with her fancy bonnet on thinking she is just the the belle of the town, the, the most best dressed woman in the congregation at church, but she's got lice all over her head. And if only she could see herself as others see us. So that is this week's Blazer of Glory. I love the image of the louse ready to leap on another body <laughs> and uh, Robbie Burns begging, begging it not to and begging Jenny not to toss her head and shower the uh, congregation, including his good self, with her lies. So, I mean, the louse is a... <clears throat> symbol of that kind of closeness, the idea of things living parasitically on us is somehow revolting, is it not? Well, I think in the age of COVID where we're just imagining, you know, every other person as some sort of walking, infectious biohazard, this idea um, way back in the 18th century of, uh, you know, when they, I guess they didn't have the same understanding of infection that we do now in our modern post-COVID age, just being repelled by the things that you can see that are communicable, you know, between humans like lice. Mm. Well, a dear friend of mine has been listening to us on Fashion by Dad and sent me a link uh, called Where Does Dust Come From? And, of course, the, uh, most of the dust in our home is actually pieces of it's human us. skin or the uh, bed mites that live on our skin and their droppings. And so, you know, there's this whole biological process going on as we decay and the parasites and creatures that clean up after us process all of that uh, biomass. Well, there's actually, I think dust comes from three things in our, in our modern age. Well, actually, a whole bunch of pollutants but plastic, microplastics. So they're calling this a this time, 
um, you know, archaeologists archaeologist will refer to this time as the age of the Plasticine, the age of the plastic, sorry, not Plasticine, plastic, uh, so that there is across the globe, there is a thin layer of plastic coating everything and that when you dig down uh, in future centuries, they will be able to identify what was the 21st century by the plastic. So that's one thing. Then there's us, the human shedding waste. I guess plastic is a shedding of of humanness as well. And then finally, and a nicer one I like to think, is stars, stardust, cosmic Star- dust. Cosmic dust. Well, they are raining, raining on us. Um, there's an interesting fact about uh, lice I'm not sure that you are aware of. There are a couple of different species of lice. No way. That makes sense, but I always just thought there was just one. No, there's the we used to call them crabs, the kind of lice that live in your pubes, not your sporran, because it's got to be warm and moist and your <laughs> sporran is on the outside. It might be cold and moist. Uh, but the... Uh, pubic louse is a different creature than the head louse. So the um, head louse lives on our head. But um, but are there different species of louse in different countries? Like, I is don't there th- an I Eastern European louse versus an Australasian louse? I'm not aware of that. I don't think so. But the is there um, any lousarians? out there let us know that's right if you are if you specialize in entomology entomologists specializing. specializing in lice then please inform but i'm uh, reliably informed by uh, dr google that the uh, head louse is in fact the uh, biologically related the same genetic Makeup as the louse which inhabits um, uh, gorillas. And so gorillas have no distinction between head louse and genital louse because they're furry all, all over. over. Well, and this is another interesting fact and a, a weird little segue away from louse and a personal theory of mine that when gorillas groom each other and get rid of louse, an endorphin is released into their brain that's like an opiate. It's an addictive substance. So that's why they have to keep grooming each other. And having known a few wonderful hairdressers in my life, I think I think they're getting the same opiate because they can't stop touching people's hair. Like if you're sitting Oh, here, and we all go to the hairdresser to have that attention. And to have that opiate released, mm. to be groomed. Mm. So that's why we reveal our innermost secrets. It's so interesting that we've started with being horrified about the closeness that we share with each other and the way that, you know, diseases or lice can transfer to from body to body but at the same time we crave that connection and we need that social touch and that in a time of COVID is something really difficult to find Triple Z where we produce warm inner glow Wet leg with wet dream here on 4ZZZ, where it's 5.30am if you are getting up and getting ready for work. Good morning. Good morning. Speed up. The clock is ticking. Uh, Now, wet leg from the Isle of Wight. Do you know where the Isle of Wight is? 
No. I promised the listener that I would uh, look it up and tell them, but I've failed to do that. Naughty dance and data. Um, yeah, so Wet Leg uh, got a few, uh, well, that's their brand new track. Uh, a little earlier in the show, I played their previous track, which was their debut track, which was only a couple of months old, called um, Chaise Long. And uh, they were playing that live at the Green Day Festival in the UK last week. And the uh, three blokes who were hanging around in the background of Wet Dream being teased unmercifully by uh, the two women who make up Wet Leg are in the band. They are the band. That's their their back-end band. And you told me that they wear peasant costumes and dance around in wheat fields. They do. It's a very sort of rustic Isle of Wight kind of scene. I feel like there isn't enough peasant costume wearing in Australia. The only time I've seen it is when on those school trips where you're forced to go to ye old timey Australia. Sovereign Hill in Melbourne was... God, it was awful and they have fake whippings. And I'm like, even as a kid, I was like, what is this (laughs) bullshit? Why are we here seeing some fake torture? What is this this, this fancy old girl's school education paying for? Well, it's sort of to normalise the idea of we're not allowed to punish you capitally anymore. Capitally or corporal? Corporal punishment. Which one's killing you? Capital punishment. Yeah, is so killing. corporal's the. No, they just psychologically torture this. So, uh, you know, if you look at my school photos, the year one, two, and three, I've got a 70 year old teacher and his wife. Uh, and in year four, I had Mr. Christie for two years. And they were the very old school. Like they started, they were about to retire. So, this is 1958. So, they'd started teaching in about 1903. And, um, uh, Pop Twisty thought that I... Uh, that's what we called him, Pop Twisty. His name was Mr Christie. Um, thought that I was wasting my talent and had a bad attitude. So he used to give me the maximum amount of straps that he was allowed to, which was six straps on each hand uh, each half day. So I got, tw- uh, you know... That's traumatic. 24 belts a day with a leather belt. And he had a special belting belt, which was a lot heavier than the belt he wore around his waist. And so, you know, it was every week we, uh, Michael Chandler and I got 60 straps. That's horrible. So it must have been 12 straps a day. So he only, yeah, probably would have done the right hand in the morning and the yeah. left hand in the afternoon. So that Did was. Did it make that you a better co- person or? Oh, no, it made me a. Uh, nervous little rat bag with a bad attitude to authority that I'm still trying to overcome, you know. (laughs) (laughs) They're like a... Whilst I didn't get the strap, I had had a teacher that for some reason from year seven onwards just bullied me through all through school. And I think on the first day she came up and grabbed me and I was a very small, scared-looking, skinny little girl, much smaller than my classmates. And she said, Claire Tracy, on the outside, butter would not melt. But on the inside, I know you're quite evil. Mm. And left it at that. The dark heart. On 4ZZZ, you are listening to Fashion by Dad with me, Jeff Ebbs, and Claire Tracy. It's 12 minutes to 6 o'clock, so we're getting towards the end of the show. Branko is in the next studio preparing some unnecessary knowledge for your delectation and enjoyment. Um, Claire, 
you've been you're a bit of a game player. I am a gamer. What are you playing at the moment? I am playing Horizon Zero Dawn again for the third time in anticipation of Horizon Zero Dawn Forbidden West being released next year. Now that sounds sort of military to me. No, it is an incredible, I would describe it as a feminist video game uh, about a young woman battling robot entities in a post-apocalyptic world, uh, having left her matriarchal village and heading out into this incredible landscape that is punctuated by the most beautiful soundtrack. I think it's one of the few video games that's had its soundtrack released as an album. So I like to play the video game and then I also listen to the soundtrack as I go about my my life in the world so that I feel like I've got a bit of a kind of existence crossover between my gaming life and my waking life. Mm, be interesting to track the evolution of soundtracks of video games because... They were, when computers were new, the little 8-bit soundtracks were pretty uh, lo-fi. I, my guess would be that there are quite probably quite a few theses, PhD doctorates written about that very topic. Well, from people like yourself who love to play games and... If only I had chosen gaming, I've actually had to unplug my PlayStation a few times throughout my doctorate and put it in the highest cupboard in a box with no written on the box so that I can actually get... Well, that's interesting because I was about to say one of the reasons I don't play uh, video games or computer games is because I know that I would be totally addicted. I I have always treated them a bit like I treat heroin, something... Trying to explain it to, uh, you know, my parents, for instance. For me, it is the crossover between a beautiful, immersive painting that, like, the art is stunning, the soundtrack is incredible, and the story is incredible. So it's like reading an excellent novel, but that you have to earn the plot as you go through. And mm. I, I understand the um, compulsion, but I don't more, have the experience. More than any other... Um, medium, the inspiration I find for my artwork I usually find in video games. So not other artists or, um, you know, sometimes books and music, but usually it comes from video games. So you've described a young woman leaving a matriarchal village and battling alien robots, did not you say? Not alien, no. No, just robots? Robot animals. Robot animals. Robot animals, yeah. So it's a, you know, bash them up kind of... Game. No, there's a lot of strategy, there's a lot of narrative there, uh, but the story, you sort of start to experience uh, sort of fake future history of why the world ended in, you know, the late 21st century. So you're discovering all these artefacts from this future history. And how does that help you play or is that just a... Subplot. I don't want to give the, the game away too much, but you do find out that there's this kind of um, Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos type guy that owns the world, basically, and this technological innovator, and he gets cocky and arrogant with the technology, and that's what causes the downfall of humankind. And you, as you go through the game, you can go and see these little uh, snippets of his point of view left around this landscape. So you have to go climb and find them. It's just an incredible gaming experience. I've mm. never played anything like it. And so you're describing an experience that's both, you know, sensual, intellectual and 
whatever we call it when you're sort of physically challenged although you're sitting in a chair so you're not tell you what if there's an exciting bit my little legs are running on that couch i'm like go 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 okay all right well there you have it uh claire trace what's the name of the game again horizon zero dawn and i'm going to shoot you some links to the soundtrack and perhaps you can play the next week we might revisit this topic Mm, indeed, that sounds like a plan. And on this lovely raining morning, Fashion by Dad is saying goodbye and handing over to Brenko and Cam with unnecessary knowledge. Been a great show and looking forward to their great show following up.